Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it, and the times we've used it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Sue Redmond. Sue is a mindfulness-based trauma-informed coach and child and adolescent development specialist. She has a keen interest in resilience and has a PhD in leadership, resilience and social support. She develops resources and training for professionals, particularly social workers, youth workers and teachers, to equip them with the skills to change children and young people's lives for the better. She has over 20 years experience of working with children, adolescents and professionals with a particular focus on well-being, mental health, sexual health and leadership. She's developed over 25 resources and trainings that professionals use daily across Ireland and some at an international level. She has a 20-year practice in meditation, specifically Vipassana. She is a mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher, yoga teacher and incorporates somatic experiencing and trauma-informed processes into her work. Sue works with individuals and groups around anxiety, depression, sexual health, mental health and sense of well-being, purpose, direction in life to help people heal their past and create their future while living joyfully in the present. She also works at an organisational level around team development, leadership and conflict management. She's a mum to two twin girls, two dogs, two cats. She's also a surfer, kite surfer and a black belt in taekwondo. (laughs) Uh, feels like one of those icebreaker ones where only one of those is true. <laughs> Welcome to the yeah. podcast, Sue. <laughs> Thank you, Jen. So lovely to meet you. Uh, well, excited to be here. Uh, well, I'm very excited that after kind of, I feel like myself, I'm not the expert. I'm kind of fumbling around in the dark, but I found somebody with a PhD in resilience. So <laughs> I feel like you're going to have a lot to teach me on this subject. Um, so yeah, resilience. It's yeah. obviously been a big part of your life in terms of, I guess, studying it and working with it. But when we talk about resilience, what does that mean to you? What's your definition? So I think um, ultimately, if when we look at life, it's largely unpredictable and it presents us with lots of different challenges that we never fully anticipate. So resilience is that ability of an individual to adapt to challenges that life naturally throws up. So we might have some people that... Um, may get exposed to particular traumas early in life. And for whatever reason, they have supports around them that help them to get through those a little bit easier. But then for other young people, say, for example, in the very early years and days of their lives, they may lack um, attachment to a significant caregiver. And that actually can really affect their ability to connect and build empathetic pathways in the brain. And as there's more insults on the brain and lack of connection that nurturing that is needed it can mean that those early pathways when they aren't there it's harder for them to get built up now the wonderful thing is um the brain is amenable to change but to be resilient means that we can bounce back from a situation but if we inherently miss the fundamental foundation building blocks of our development it's really hard to to build those unless we literally go back and lay adequate foundations. And some of that can crop up in lots of different ways, which we'll get to later in, I'm sure. But um, yeah, for me, resilience is being able to handle what life throws at you 
whether it's negative events or situations, and then be able to find a meaning in it that um, helps you to move forward in a in almost like a growth way that makes sense. So it's yeah, our ability it to bounce back, adapt, and be flexible so that we can ultimately lead happy, healthy, successful lives. And how did you get into studying this and working with this? So I guess from a personal perspective, um, like I would have grown up in, you could say, a family environment where there's maybe a lot of conflict, um, quite a stressful space. And I, I guess I was kind of always really interested in it. And then life threw its own challenges at me as I moved into the world of work and travel and I did find myself not being entirely resilient and I was like whoa what is it and it was a combination of it was a combination (laughs) pause there for a second I don't know we're talking about life throwing up challenges and adapting (laughs) so having a a child come and join in that's fine (laughs) was able to find a way out of it with meditation and and other supports, shall we say, which um, really drew me into really wanting to help uh, support young people. So one trauma in particular stands out in my adolescence that really put me on this path. It was a teacher that I had in secondary school and she was particularly, let's say, mean-spirited and would easily humiliate you and just very, um, very negative impact that just, I guess, set me on a trajectory of like, this is, it's not appropriate. Nobody in a position of authority should wield that kind of power where it leaves people feeling very, um, very vulnerable. And so then when I went through college and found, um, found myself re, re-studying, uh, and going back into youth and community work and then um, so found myself going into uh, health promotion and then working with uh, young people in Limerick, uh, a part of Ireland that was at the time very uh, influenced by drugs and working with a lot of young people whose families were in a heroin situation. Uh, the call for me was really strong around actually I know I can help uh, educate educators so teachers social workers youth workers and how better to in using the skills that I learned along the way how to have a better influence on young people's lives and then as I grew into my career I I took over managing a team and developing curriculum for uh, all sorts of um, areas of child and youth development and it was just so uh heartening to see that actually with the right training and skills um, people can change educators can change and they have then the power and the capacity to massively influence just everyone around them and sometimes it's from ignorance of not knowing that they don't know that they're casting this light or they haven't they don't realize um, that it's it has the impact that it has on people. So by raising their awareness around how to better engage children and young people, I think it leaves a massive legacy of love, a massive influence um, that it can only lead to a better 
better next generation and even better current um, interaction in the world. So it, the the idea being that when we bring the best of ourselves into our work, it just leaves such a wonderful trail and light everywhere. Um, and obviously there's the shadow and the shadow psychology that comes along with that, like with a, a brilliant, bright, beautiful light. There's also the, the shadow that we don't always see and we're not always aware of. Um, but if we're really open and in tune, and this is where I, I love meditation, it has a really great impact. Um, it just sheds greater awareness and light on what's um, happening and important. And I definitely want to go on to talk about the meditation, but just going back, I mean, it sounds like you've managed to have such a profound effect on such a wide number of people, both in your country and across the world. But what what is it that you're equipping the teachers or the people that are engaging with the young people um, with? How do, how do we build that resilience or how do we, yeah, engage with them? So some of it is, well, it's it's very experiential activities in a lot of situations where it's group work. Um, so the either the the facilitator, the teacher, or the social worker might be working in small groups or, or larger groups, or even in a one to one situation, and how they can bring aspects of well being, mental health, sexual health awareness, leadership skills. So, like breaking those concepts down, but in a fun way that builds people's awareness around how they are. So. For example, it might be uh, social skills for one group of, of young people. Like, how do they actually interact and communicate, particularly in a world where a lot of young people, particularly coming out of COVID even, have, just don't have those skills of how to communicate and how to, to talk to one another. Or it can be just understanding their personality type and how that has an impact on how they interact with other people. And then in other situations, it might be, um, learning some of the skills around mindfulness or how to be present, how to deal with conflict. So it's breaking down a lot of the, the concepts that you think, you know, actually when you think about an education system, these are fundamental, nearly more so than maths, English, even though they're obviously really important too, but actually how we get on in the world and how we get on with ourselves is really important. How we see ourselves and how we accept ourselves, um, how we accept other people and move from, you know, inherent bias to a sense of actually the entire human ecosystem is part of our tribe. So in some ways, it's leaning into the vulnerability around being able to acknowledge and talk about things like sex and sexual health and moving away from the, the trauma certainly our country has experienced around, you know, shame around sex and guilt and the whole Catholic Irish thing that has perpetuated across the, the world as well um, and all of the abuse and the scandals that went with that uh, and the real shame that has come with sex and enabling people to actually lean into a comfort around actually let's let's talk about mental health, let's talk about sex, let's talk about that it's okay to connect with people and in fact it's not just okay, it's completely necessary and when we connect with other people it forms part of a really important social network and even if we just have one person one person in our life that we feel that we could talk to even if we never access that person but we just perceive that they're there it is the equivalent of gold because that one person whether they're we tap into that support or not 
will help us to become resilient. So there are other things that we have protective factors and we have risk factors. So risk factors might be things like um, a lack of maternal attachment or, um, you know, parental mental health, uh, drug and alcohol use within a family, uh, poverty, a whole host of other risk factors. And then we have protective factors that actually help protect us, like the social network, like the ecosystem that is around us, like that one good teacher that you come across that kind of inspires you to want to do more or be more or to, to contribute a little bit more or sees that you, you have the capacity um, for and the potential for, for greatness, even if you don't believe in that yourself. So all of these different protective factors. And then we also obviously have the nutrition that we put into our body, the exercise that we take in, whether we hydrate ourselves. So the very fundamental parts with the, the bit around how we educate educators um, really comes down to encouraging them to lean into the discomfort. So what I've seen a lot is that people don't want to go there, particularly when we talk about sexual health or even sometimes mental health, because they feel a little bit awkward around it. Um, so it's just easier not to do it. And certainly come across it in Ireland, and I'm sure the UK isn't that different, where we have a program called Social Personal Health Education. And I fortunately developed the curriculum for it for junior cert cycle, which I think is the equivalent of your GCSEs. Um, so for the country around well-being, mental health and sexual health. But a lot of teachers are either handed it because, you know, they have a gap in their schedule or they're not adequately trained or they're just out of college and they might only be in their early 20s and still not really sure of who they are, how they approach sex comfortable with the you know, I've had teachers openly admit to me, I just stick to the anatomy, Sue, because that's all I'm comfortable with. And you're like, we're doing our kids such a disservice by not leaning into, well, what is pleasure? Because this is what gets us to the fumbling around in the dark, the needing to turn off the lights, the having to get absolutely wasted to even have sex, and then all the consent issues that we run into, and all the violence and other things that crop up then as well. So for me, a lot of it is about encouraging educators to lean into their own discomfort um, and to equip them with the skills then to be able to handle that, those difficult conversations in a classroom, for which if you've ever worked with teenagers, they will throw every single difficult, <laughs> awkward, turn your red in the face question. But you've got to be able to hold that and you have to be funny. Like you have to be able to just let it roll off your back and, and come back like stronger. Um, and that's what being resilient is. It's not letting the, the onslaught of teenage um, boys terrify you. Oh, I mean, I spent 14 years representing children in prison and care. So, yeah, I feel that definitely um, was kind of a baptism of fire, I think, starting to work in prisons. Well, how was it received by the kind of teachers and the facilitators and the people that you're working with? Is this something that was kind of baby steps that took a long time or were people really welcoming to have this support? I'm going to be honest, like everything, a mix. So some people, you're quick preaching to the choir they're they're already on it they they believe in what you're doing they're all they already have it in the practice their practice and they just love the extra few tools and creative ways that you might bring to them to help them do that uh for others then they're just like no this is crazy like i'm not going to who are you you know tell me or to think that i absolutely that their discomfort in a particular area or their belief that they're right 
So, for example, one of the programs that I developed was a child and uh, youth participation uh, toolkit and training um, with a colleague to roll out in our social services, shall we say. And the definitely an element where people were like, no, why would I ask them what they want? Like, I know what they want. I know what they need. And obviously, there's a professional element, but anything for me without me means that I'm not going to fully be bought into whatever it is you do for me. Whereas at least if you ask me and you include me in that process, there's a greater chance that I might actually be open to to whatever emerges from it. And I'm just kind of thinking like, I know we've been talking specifically about your work with young people there, but I mean, are these just general things? Because when we were looking, when you were talking and you were saying about getting these skills for personality types for conflict management, I mean, I'm not sure I'm there yet with those. And I just like, is this something that would benefit everybody if we could all access this work? Well, it it is like I have to say, which is kind of funny, a lot of the, the stuff, the curriculum that I've developed for young people and teenagers I literally use with leaders in organizations (laughs) like I use the same kind of games get them to use some of the same debriefing because it's the same like essentially within each of us there's a five-year-old like and we're all just little five-year-olds walking around in these adult (laughs) bodies and what's hilarious is that oh adults love the love the games and they get so much out of oh my god like when you, I was blindfolded there and you had us doing this thing, like I could really hear what other people were and how they were behaving and how it made me feel. And a lot of it is, it's aware, it's a work around awareness. And the more we kind of open our awareness, the greater our capacity then to, I guess, shine a little bit brighter. So we're trying to always remove, I think, it's a little bit like unlearning. So if you think about it, if you look at a child, a tiny baby when they're born, they're pure light. Like it's just when, when all their needs are met, when they're been fed, they're in a dry nappy, they're warm, they're pure joy. So it, inherent in the individual is the capacity for resilience. It's not the individual that is the problem. It's the environment. And resilience comes from the, an interaction between the individual and their environment. So it's not just the individual. It's how we respond to, well, are my needs then been met by a mom or a dad who love me? who make sure that I'm safe, that these foundational building blocks get built in my brain. And where we have good attachment, that helps us to build up these really rich networks in our brain. Where that isn't the case, then obviously we have holes um, that need to then care to. So yeah, everybody is on a journey in this life. None of us come into this world perfect. We come into this world to learn to become perfect through all the interactions in our lives. And we can either let life harden us or we can let it soften us. And it's how we interact with the world around us. So it's a really, it's a dynamic interactional process. It's not just an individual characteristic, but it is never the individual, never about the individual. It's about the environment and how the environment is with them. It's about how the individual makes a meaning of that interaction and that we can change. Like that is changeable because we make meanings. We can all think of a traumatic experience from our childhood. Um, or to some extent, it might be a big T trauma like, like domestic violence or sexual violence or some kind of abuse. Or it can be more of the little T trauma. So the kind of, you know, just lack of attention, needs not been met, those kinds of things. And when we have those 
traumas and if we go back and revisit them with the mind of an adult so when we're five and we make a meaning out of an interaction and that gets creates an indelible experience in our brain about how we perceive ourselves and another person it's really when the ego gets born so we think about how how we are as this brilliant bright beautiful childlike piece of life and then the first time that we become separated from a sense of love and connection and that we are okay that we are enough and then the ego comes along and the ego gets born and this ego is there as our self-protector in a lot of ways but it actually becomes our saboteur because it's there in first to say, well, no, you're not enough. So don't even try, because if you try, you're probably going to fail. And then that'll hurt more than me jumping in first and telling you you're just shit like. So we have these core beliefs that crop up from these early interactions and they affect our ability to be resilient in different situations. And they affect our ability to you know, go after opportunities and to, to mind our mental health and to do all the things that we know are good for us because there might be things like you're not good enough. Um, why would you try? You're going to fail anyway. And you're unlovable. So when we go back and we can revisit those early experiences and change the meaning or, or allow the energy to be just charged from the body that didn't get fully um, released because our experiences create like emotion which is energy in motion and if it doesn't fully move through the body it gets stuck somewhere and that leads to um yeah a host of illnesses but I could you know go on forever so that's fine no it's fascinating I was just kind of wondering like I hear the phrase like children are resilient and now when I'm listening to you then I'm like you know I'd have probably said that particularly when I was working with teenagers in prison yeah they can adapt they can get on with situations pretty quickly and um but but actually is it going back to that kind of feeling that things haven't been released are we just storing up problems are they not actually that resilient or does it just depend on the individual like it does with the adults so to some extent so i'm thinking of there's a study from was it Kauai in hawaii and they did some research with a longitudinal piece of research with uh children and all manners of different uh, risk factors. And then over the life course, a lot of it pittered out, like a lot of the protective factors came into play and kids that they might've assumed would have been in a, a you know, more difficult situation weren't because of the very various protective factors that played out. So over the life course, um, things ten tended to fare fairly all right. So that's just that study. But in other situations, then we have, where you have a trauma in the brain. And so, yes, kids can be resilient, but they can be resilient when there's supports there around them, when there's family there around them, when there's an outlet for them to process that. So having an empathetic listener can be one of the, the most valuable things. Otherwise, yeah, we do store quite a bit of it up. And what happens is, say, for the young person who, you know, experiences neglect um, or even abuse in, in early childhood, they they might turn to drugs of abuse to meet that need for nurture. Um, so, you know, having worked with heroin addicts, uh, like heroin is an opioid, it relieves pain. And emotional pain is feels, lights up parts of the brain, just like physical pain. So when somebody smokes heroin or injects it, you know, it's meeting a need for, for love, you know, that wasn't met. And when we look at addicts and really, 
you know, it's it's the addicts to look at why what is the underlying what is the underlying suffering that they're trying to alleviate? What's the underlying thing that they're trying to meet within themselves that they haven't met or that their their parent wasn't there to give them or, you know, some other, you know, uh, supportive adult wasn't there to to tell them that they were good enough or to give them a hug. Um, that idea that, you know, again, just landing on heroin is like a warm hug for somebody that has never received that. So it absolutely makes sense then why somebody would go go to that. But to come back to your question, yes, I think kids are resilient and over the, the course of life, they will find ways. So even if you look at young people in a gang situation, they're getting their needs met for belonging, for mastery. So they're learning a skill where they can bring that into the world. Maybe it's not the most socially accepted skill, but they're learning a skill and we have a need for belonging, connection, mastery, to feel like we're good at something, uh, independence so that they you know, can do what, what it is that they, they need to do. And all of these things are, are vital to our, our development. So if we don't find them in healthy ways, we sure as hell will find them in unhealthy ways. But we'll find them, we'll look for them. Uh, society may not like how we, how we choose, though. And in the intro, that was kind of we talked about how part of your work was healing your past so that you could um, create a future and live joyfully. What does that healing look like? Is it building on those protective factors that you talked about? Or is there any other work that you do? Or yeah, suggest? So to, to some extent, it is building the, on the protective factors, but actually more and I find I, I do this more and more now with um, individual clients is actually really going into the body so between the practice of, of mindfulness and the somatic work is really feeling into the body and as I was saying some of that energy gets trapped so when we have a fight flight or freeze reaction to life around us which are normal very helpful reactions to everyday occurrences somebody pulls out in front of you in a car it's great you know, slam on the brakes, you're safe. Um, but in those, you know, maybe other traumas in our lives, some of that energy that doesn't get fully uh, dissipated gets trapped in the body. And and then you wonder why maybe you're snapping at your kid or you're frustrated uh, because the traffic is bad. And there's all these other things because we've got a low, li- low level din in, of noise in our bodies, in our consciousness that hasn't fully processed. And that can be bigger or smaller, depending on the trauma. And some of this is then helping people to really feel into their bodies and process that. So allowing the energy to discharge. So Peter Levine, Dr. Peter Levine has done a lot of work around somatic experiencing, um, a a lovely book called Waking the Tiger. And Babette Rothschild has a lovely book called The Body Remembers. And there's another lovely book, uh, The Body Keeps Score. So all of these really talk about how Actually, trauma happens in the body. So if you imagine somebody that's sexually abused, trauma happens physically in their body. Um, And so talking about it can help absolutely to some extent, but actually we have to release it from the body. It has to come out from the body. And that might look like shaking, so neurogenic shaking, so allowing that energy to discharge. Um, It could look like uh, processing it by running or racing or moving the body in different ways. Uh, dance or dynamic so movement but doing it in a, in a consciousness that brings the awareness of the incident um, with the support of somebody that can hold that space shall we say to release and discharge the energy so that it's not uh, 
you know that image, I'm sure you've probably seen it, the image of the, the man standing and looking at in, in a park, in a lovely park, and he's got a dog beside him and the dog is looking in the park and the dog is just looking at the park and the man is looking at the park, but his mind is filled with everything. And absolutely, our minds get filled with things because we've loads of tasks on. But our minds also hold on to all of our past. Like, so when we have 60,000 thoughts in a day, it's not just 60,000 thoughts about how I'm going to have a conversation with you today. It's 60 thoughts of all these things that are racing and competing for my attention built on a pyramid of stress from things that I haven't resolved from my past, um, made peace with, forgiven myself or other people around. So there's definitely a, a bringing in of you know, mindfulness and compassion into that practice that, that just helps people to, to let go and to let go of the hurts that have happened. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they condone what's happened because sometimes it's been really awful stuff. Um, but it is being able to see it afresh with different eyes and to, because forgiving somebody isn't so much about, you know, letting them off the hook. It's about letting yourself off the hook. It's about giving yourself a bigger container to hold that thing that happened and an ocean of love because that thing is really, you know, however big and bad it is, I'm probably eternally optimistic that everything can be resolved with, with the right supports and the right, uh, the right guidance and the right awareness into the body because most of it, most people that I work with, they can't feel below their head. They don't. Can you feel into my toes? What the heck? My toe, I have toes. Like, unless they're throbbing because something has fallen heavily on them. You know, a lot of people can't feel their sensations in their toes. So then how do they know that anger is erupting in their body? A lot of people, again, it isn't until they have a heart attack or they're at the doctors and looking for antidepressants or anti-anxiety that they go, oh, actually, life, literally, your body is screaming at you. And why does it take us to almost die to actually want to change our lives? Like we'll go and we'll get our hair cut. You know, we'll pay somebody to, that knows what they're doing to get the, our hair cut. We'll go to the doctor if we have an infection. Heck, we'll even get advice around the clothes that we want to wear. But so few people are willing to say, look, this thing that I do every single day of my life, like every single day of my life, I have to live this life. And it's, it feels shitty. Like there are people out there that can actually help you make it feel less shitty and actually pretty joyful. Um, so, yeah, there's a there's a great opportunity, I think, uh, when we look at there's so much wonderful research there that helps people to process trauma and to, to move through it so that they can find peace. And that's what we want, because we can't we can sit here and get angry about things on the TV um, or from our little cubicle or wherever we are in the world. And, but until we find peace within ourselves, wishing for peace anywhere else is, is wildly optimistic. The only place that we can find peace is it has to start here. And this is kind of language that I'm pretty used to. I'm a yoga teacher and been through all that. But I just wondered, like, when you're working with professionals, particularly, or to some extent, young people or facilitators, like, how is this received, this kind of very holistic view of, I mean, most people just want a quick fix or something like take a pill or do this. And so, yeah, how... 
it just feels a very different approach for leadership. And and I agree. A lot of people want quick fix. They want <laughs> you know two two and done. You know one and done. Great. Um, because we're so used to now. You know you can order your thing off Amazon and it's there in a day or two. You can do this, then it's it's there. Like you literally go onto the internet and you have the world at your fingertips. What do you mean I actually have to put a bit of work into myself to improve my life? No, I just want to order that <laughs> online, please. And can you send it in a bow? So yeah, like uh, some people are more open to it. Um, I remember when I started first bringing mindfulness into the work that I was doing with youth workers. I think they thought I was crazy. They they probably did think I was crazy. So that was easily like 2009 or eight. And like, yeah, they totally thought I was crazy. But then thankfully it became a bit more, you know, mainstream. Okay, um, that's interesting. Yeah, I remember yeah, so, one of the prison programs had brought in mindfulness and it was kind of getting prisoners to eat a carrot and think about sensations. I can't remember which one it was, whether it was um, thinking skills or something. And yeah, that was kind of... Not not particularly well received by a lot of the prisoners yeah. to start with, but hopefully yeah. they some of them got something. And this from is it. it. <laughs> like there was a, there's a wave of it now where people see it as accepted. Like even a funny situation. I had a friend of mine who who only recently, despite knowing her my whole life, um, and obviously wrecking her head that she would benefit tremendously from such a thing as mindfulness. But she recently did a retreat and she was like, came out of it and went finally think I understand you <laughs> I finally think I get it I was like I actually think I'm gonna like I, I have to meditate every day like she was just like but it's funny because a lot of people kind of come to that in their more midlife like I guess I was fortunate to mm. happen on it in my 20s you know so um so it is interesting how that movement has has moved like that wave has become more acceptable and you still have people that question it and you know oh say you know, there'll always be somebody out there that'll come up with an argument against it. But um, I mean, it really feels one. like the kind of research and science is catching up and being able to explain it, which I think has made it a, more acceptable, certainly for yeah. kind of my partner. But if you think about it, like, you know, if you, you want to go down the, the yoga side of things and Buddha, like, Two and a half thousand years ago, he didn't have anybody producing scientific papers <laughs> to show that it was effective and it worked. It was just like, oh, yeah, this works. But how, how, what, isn't it strange? And this is coming from somebody who's an academic like as well, but isn't it strange that we require oodles of evidence, like proof, like that this, this works in lots of different populations before we'll take it, you know? Or yeah. And try it. And oh, now, now, that, now that the whole world is saying that it is uh, something that is of benefit okay, I'll give it a shot. Um, but I'm happy to live in my low din of, um, you know, discomfort until there's enough evidence to show that maybe I should, you know, <laughs> try it. But it just, when you, when you put it like that, it just seems, it seems radical not to be willing to experiment with things like, you know, that kind of mindfulness or somatic work. Like, it just makes so much sense. You, you, particularly if you're into yoga, like moving in the body and how blissful at the mm. end of a session you lie down and into the or into your final like shavasana and it's just like oh this is what and like it has frustrated me at times before I was a yoga teacher as well when you would go to a class and somebody would not they just end the class walk out of the room and 
people would start leaving and not do the the most important <laughs> part. Like I'm like, really? Like we've just gone through all that to not reap the benefits. Yeah. And like that's where people have, you know, there was that maybe in this is back when I was like 21, like, and it was like, oh, well, we've done the physical work now. Let's move on with our day. Like, like no. Yeah. Cause I guess like my first yoga class was in a sort of virgin active gym and it was, but oh. I, I was doing Pilates classes and, and the teacher was covering yoga and she was like, oh, come along. And then that was my first test. And it was felt very much more like an exercise class rather than, you know, like we could mm. hear the spinning class through the walls and yeah. stuff. And so it took yeah. me a long time to work out for me that it wasn't really about the, the well, yeah. in terms of like an exercise and workout. Um, just going on to kind of, we've mentioned meditation, we've mentioned mindfulness, and I thought it'd be quite useful just to kind of distinguish between the two or let us know what you're talking about when you mention those. Are they interchangeable for you? Well, to some extent they are, and then to some extent they're not. So meditation is like the formal practice of sitting, sitting and observing your thoughts, your sensations, or whatever it might be, sound or light that you're meditating on. It could even be a phrase or a mantra. So that's the the actual practice of stopping um, and sitting or or lying and being in that space of focus. And then mindfulness is the quality of being aware of the present moment without judgment. And you can do mindfulness meditation where you bring that quality of non-judgment into your into the practice of meditation, which is obviously a good chunk of what meditation is. But you can also then bring mindfulness into your everyday. So can I? be walking down the road and observing the birds around me without judging? Or can I be, you know, in a traffic jam and observing this present moment as it arises and accept it as it is without trying to change it or wish it were different or that it would change in some way and accept it without judging it? And so that for me is the distinction. Meditation is when I commit to sit on the mat and mindfulness can be the meditation as well. But it is, it's the taking of it into your everyday. So it's taking it off the mat and into the world with you. And there's just one other thing that to circle back, um, to, you said around the, the question on how to bring the piece of resilience into the work that I do as well. As another one just to, that comes to mind is around the belief that change is possible. Because oftentimes I think people throw their hands up and they think, well, if it's not an instant, doesn't happen straight away. If I don't come out there feeling like I'm a million fucking dollars, well, fuck it. I'm not going to try it. Do you know, and like we can get that if you if you give me a longer time, like a, a weekend retreat, I get to go deep with you and we will unearth a lot of shit. Um, but if I only have a, an hour or two to work with you, like every other week or whatever, it, it's just going to take a little bit longer. So, but the belief that change is possible and which to come back to science, neuroscience shows that actually our brains have this wonderful capacity for change so that when we bring attention and awareness to the present moment and we can actually lay new, new neural pathways in our brain of focus and attention and create super highways that replace the old super highways. So we might have always reacted to something in a particular way because it triggered us. So we reacted out of you know, frustration to a stressor. And then the more we build our awareness of that stress trigger and how we are and our awareness in the present moment using something like mindfulness, um, we can actually change how we respond. So instead of reacting out of a stress 
we can respond to that situation and we just have more space instead of reacting we're making a choice actually this is this thing is bugging me i actually don't have to lose my head i don't have to punch the guy i have time to to choose or i don't have to scream and slam the door or go into a sulk for the day um i can choose a different way of being so this kind of um neurogenesis is wonderful so our brains have this wonderful capacity for change and that is crucial i think so the belief that change is possible uh, and knowing that science backs it up is a pretty awesome thing <laughs> for those that are skeptical <laughs> yeah so for the skeptics among you science backs this up and your brain can change but i, um, so I guess it's before, yeah like it's going back to that like you're saying that you're not well probably not going to see instant results like the first time I meditated I think it's that you know it was basically just a script in my head going I'm doing this wrong I'm nothing's happening (laughs) and um it it really yeah it's not instant or it definitely wasn't for me I didn't suddenly start floating around the room and I suppose if people I guess there are quite a lot of misconceptions maybe that's changing with how more mainstream it is but misconceptions that it is going to be in that instant state Mm. that you're going to change or um yeah what are the sort of barriers that you find people have when they're approaching the kind of mindfulness meditation somatic experience work i think i think that is a big one that they expect it to be instant that oh my my life is going to change um and then not finding the time not giving it the time like and that is always you know a choice that we make it's it's a difficult choice but the ego comes up and says oh my god the washing needs to go on or you know i must finish this project at work it's way more important and i'll be less stressed when i get that done what they don't realize is that if they genuinely say to themselves, I'm making a stronger commitment to myself. I'm making a stronger commitment to myself. And if it's five minutes, do five minutes. If it's 10 minutes, do 10 minutes. If it's an hour, wonderful. But don't give yourself a hard time over it, but do something and do something every day if you can. Um, because we build up strength in our brain. So it's a, a bit like if the first time you put on a pair of runners and you said, oh, I'm going to do a couch to 5K, you didn't go out and run around the house once and say, well, that's it now. I'm a marathon runner. <laughs> that's it. I am, you know, I'm awesome. And watch out. I'm going to win the next marathon in London. No, you went, I just put the runners on and they fucking hurt. And it was a bit painful. <laughs> and that's what happens when you start to look at your mind. It's a little bit uncomfortable. And a lot, a lot of people want to pull away because it mm-hmm. is uncomfortable. And it's easier to stay in the discomfort have you know the illusion than to actually turn and face it it's actually easier to go do you know what i'll just keep drinking the wine and fuck it we'll deal with the yeah or i suppose it's that and i i know from myself that i just I was just busy. I kind of glorified being busy. I was always too busy for everything. And it was almost like a kind of badge of honor. Oh, I can't sit still. Oh, I can't, can't relax. As if that was something to be proud of. And it's taken me a long time to kind of get through that and realize, no, I, that's exactly when I needed to sit still and relax and, and sit with those uncomfortable feelings that come up. 100%. It's that um, lovely saying that Dalai Lama says, oh, if I don't have an hour to meditate, I need, you know, if I don't give it the hour, well, then it's going to take me the two days to do the work <laughs> because you get such clarity when you stop 
But you stop doing the faffy stuff. You stop doing the stuff that doesn't make any difference because we all get caught in, as you say, busyness. And I'm so busy and my life's so busy and I can't. Oh, the, the badge of honor that comes with that is such a small trophy because we just busy ourselves with unnecessary work versus thinking of what are the 20 percent that I can do today that's going to move a mountain versus the 80 percent of faff that I'm been driven by my inbox or you know stuff that really doesn't matter and then you step back and you go god like I could achieve a lot more if I just focus on what was really important because a lot of us get caught in doing the really urgent but not very important stuff or the urgent and important and you know get in a flap so I think the biggest barriers really are, are ourselves the only person that gets in our way ever is ourselves and you know, we can find a lot of excuses, but each of us, I hope, brushes our teeth every day and every morning and every night. And if we can find a couple of minutes to do that, some of us even manage to do things like go for a manicure or, you know, we find ways to fit other things in. But actually that prioritizing like the healthy habits that we know, like we let's be honest, we know what's good for us. We know that eating a load of junk isn't that great for us. We know that, you know, not exercising is not great for us. Um, knowledge is only potential power. Like it's, it's, all, it's like a light in a room. If you don't push the switch, nothing's <laughs> going to turn on. Like, so if we kind of look at, well, what are, what are the five habits that I could do every day for my own happiness? It's not even about your physical well-being. You know, it's about your, how you are in your body coming home to your body. So I think for me, the passion was that when I started practicing that was just like, oh, this is coming home. Ah, and like it really landed with me, that 10 day silent retreat. Hang on, that was your start of meditation. You went straight in with a 10 day uh, well, silent uh, retreat. <laughs> well, no, the start right. was probably a bit of yoga and a bit of like the <laughs> inner smile work. And but kind of, I always felt like that was just fluffing around the edges. But like when I really went, you know, I mean, that is a deep dive. <laughs> it was a deep dive and it was, it cracked my brain open. It was wow. like, oh my God, this is like lifted some serious heavy stuff, like heavy stuff. It was like, I equated to 10 years of therapy in, in 10 days. <laughs> like it was really powerful. Um, but it, it's not all blissful like people think, you know, it's your, I hate to use the word war because that sounds really harsh, but you're it's like you're a ninja going going at it with your soul like so your soul and this ego are, are just fighting it out and it's 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 intense intense um and incredible mm. but you're saying it's that we can get place. the benefits by just dipping in that five minutes that 10 minutes carving out a habit yeah, I think I think I do believe so. Like, obviously, more is always better. It's, a lot, it's like the running if you do a bit more, but to build up to a habit so that you start to see the benefit in your life and then you want to do more mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to push yourself into something that you're not going to do and then you're not going to do it anyway. I'd rather you started small and it became part of your everyday. Better to do five or ten minutes every day um, than, you know, one half an hour once a week, you mm -hmm. know. But the, the key, the absolute key is noticing how are you at the end of it? How are you at the end of it? Your mind might have been racing and agitated and, you know, hopping all over the place. But when you've done practice, 
no, no matter how the practice has been, because you can't judge that, because we all have days when we put on our runners and go for a run and it's blissful, amazing. We have other days where it's gale and mm. it's sideways wind and it's your body's aching and you just don't love it. But you, you always tune in and you say, God, I, I feel better for having done it. Even if it wasn't wonderful at the time, and it's the same at meditation, it's just like lifting weights in your brain. Lifting those weights. Um, and there's great, um, great strength of mind that comes with that. And you were talking about your meditation practice and you were saying about a lot was observing, but with without judgment. And that's the bit, I mean, that's hard. <laughs> How do we do that? <laughs> it's like the hardest thing in life, isn't it? It's like, Sounds so simple, good. but, oh. I, and I think really kind of, it took me a while to see how critical I was about myself and all this shame and thinking that I was terrible at meditating but other things when I wouldn't think that about other people at all um so yeah help us with the the non-judgmental yeah it's it's the it's one of the hardest things because it's a natural part of our prefrontal cortex to judge to evaluate and evaluation has has made us helped us to make incredible strides in humanity because we've evaluated a situation and said oh we can do this better we can evaluate a situation and say well we can build these ducts that will help sanitation and so you know that evaluative part of the mind is incredible but it gets us into trouble when it we turn it turns in on ourselves and we're constantly comparing ourselves whether that's social media how's that person doing how many likes did that get what's that person like oh how do they look and suddenly you know the ego has gone wild and it's absolutely tearing shreds off us because we're just not measuring up to whoever the or whatever the person we're comparing ourselves to. So to let that drop, it, it has to be an intention. It has to be become, oh, I'm firstly, I'm aware that I'm doing it. And then why am I judging? Like, why am I judging? For who? For, for what? Uh, and where is it coming from? So often we'll find maybe a harsh or particularly maybe judgmental parent or caregiver or school teacher or somebody in our lives. And we've adopted that voice that they had because they were like, oh, you need to be doing this and this and this. And they just wanted it. It was coming from maybe a place of love, but we have now turned it into this, you know, and maybe it wasn't coming from a place of love as well, let's be honest. But um, we've turned it, we've taken that voice and we've made it our own. And we think, we naively think that if we keep beating ourselves with a stick, we'll get better. We think that if I just keep hammering at you, you're going to eventually be that freaking good or good enough without realizing the stick is the fucking problem <laughs> and i apologize for cursing so much but i get really? passionate about <laughs> but um but the stick is the problem like that it's the stick it's that judgment and it's most often it's the judgment of ourselves it's mm -hmm. comparison of ourselves because you know the thing when you look at another person and you see oh my god they're doing so well and you compare themselves yourself to that it's because you want a little bit of that in your life. So actually jealousy is just your emotions telling you, actually, that's really important to me. I think that that's, to do something like that would be pretty awesome. So instead of then going, so we just misread our emotions. We've culturally picked up what that means and we've be, made it shameful to be jealous of somebody instead of seeing, that's just my body's way of telling me that I really admire that person. So you just flip it completely and you go, see, that's an admiration. It's not jealousy at all. It's admiration. And I, I would love that person to be my mentor. You know, so 
to to then to to learn that our emotions, every emotion is just your body trying to tell you something really important. And we've misconstrued most of those. We've given them false labels and beliefs that get us stuck and caught in ourselves. Um, so like anger is telling us that something important has been blocked. Something important has been blocked. So typically it's a secondary emotion. So underneath it is hurt. So we typically are hurt first and then we feel anger, but something important. So some valuable need wasn't met, a need for attention or love or respect. And that leads us to anger. Um, but when we recognize what, what was the need that was missing, well, I can actually meet that for myself or in communicating it well with somebody else. We can actually mutually meet each other's needs. And that's where I end up dealing with a lot of conflict situations is every conflict that erupts is because of an unmet need. Some need has not been met. Some situation emerges, some feelings happen, and then there's a need underneath those feelings and emotions that doesn't get met by the other person. And that's where it's like this tussle. But actually, when we come back to, well, what are the needs that each of us want and when we understand that that person has a need, we actually come to empathy. Oh, I can, I can understand that because for, as a human, I can understand how uncomfortable it is to feel the need for love or respect. But instead, when we get into a conflict situation, we just stay at the situation and we argue about who's right. And, you know, I'm right. So we lose our sense of peace then, don't we? We lose a sense of peace when we get caught in needing to be right. Yes. All of this shelters. <laughs> and this is why resilience is so interesting because it all, it's not just a single trait. It's the interaction with the environment, the people. It's that whole Bronfenbrenner model. Here we are, but we are not just in isolation. And then that, the funniest bit of that is it maps into yoga, into interconnectedness and oneness we're not just this isolated, separate thing. We exist and we only exist because of all these interweaving parts. And because we're so disconnected from the world, we don't see the harm that we're doing across it. And that actually, in some ways, is the shadow that we're affecting ourselves even deeper at another kind of more subconscious level, our consumerism, our yeah, need for plastic pollution. <laughs> Oh, that seems a massive topic that we could go off on. But yeah, so you feel that we have lost that connection. Because I mean, in ways, so much information, so much communication at our fingertips, and I can't work out why we have lost this connection. So I, I, one of the things that I, I have found, um, certainly since, so I live on the west coast of Ireland, lovely little village, uh, La Hinch, so nice surfing, um, surfing place, but so we moved here a couple of years ago and moved away from, say, my husband's family. And so we don't have a family connection around us. And my, my family live on the other side of the country. And so one of the things when you have small children is you realize we're not actually meant to be doing this on our own. We're not. <laughs> this is really hard. Parenting is super tough. And even though you've worked through a lot of stuff, it will throw up more stuff that you didn't even know was there because of all these invisible traumas from your early, early childhood and how you were raised and nurtured, they all come flooding up in how you respond to your own child. So it takes a huge um, awareness to hold that. And we're, we're simply not meant to, we're tribal. So, you know, if you look back at how we would have 
evolved as a species, you might have had eight adults, eight or 10 adults raising a plethora of kids bouncing in and around each other. So they didn't just rely on one adult or two adults as the role models. You had bunches of them, some to take care of cooking and cleaning and a variety of things. And now we expect one mom, maybe sometimes on their own or one dad on their own or a mom and a dad on their own to do it all. And this disconnection, I think, is probably at the core of a lot of the problems that we're seeing and will see going forward, because it's it's a really impossible task to to raise kids and do all of the other stuff that society expects. And we need to recreate that village, that sense of coming together to raise healthy, happy, vibrant kids by supporting one another. Um, that's a, another little idea I have spinning off in the background. Oh, we all going to go and live in a commune in Western Ireland? No, no oh, right, not okay. quite a commune, but a kind of like reciprocal childcare thing where you, you know, for a few hours every day, you might take a couple of other mum's kids and then they, uh. you, you swap around and it's just um, our parents can share the load. And uh, so we have a, a little few groups of that working here, which is really nice. Like, and I think it naturally emerges in some places, but I think uh, help seeking behavior or takes courage to maybe mm. ask for help and I I think particularly people feel vulnerable when they're parents in doing that so they don't necessarily want to but I but guess that, so that's one part of the disconnect then yeah the whole. and I guess going back to when we were first talking about kind of the work that you did and what you were encouraging with the young people like that was quite a lot for one person to offer in terms of the kind of social skills and offering them mindfulness or conflict and learning about the person like that's a lot for one person to do isn't it bringing up a child and so having mm. that network you can really see how that would foster all those skills how are you as a like as a parent <laughs> like I'm always fascinated because you know when we talk about resilience we're like well, we can't avoid these kind of challenges that we're going to have and we just have to adapt and I just think as a parent surely you just want your child to be wrapped up and nothing bad happened to them like how do you deal with that yeah 100% I do want to do that I do want to wrap them up and for nothing bad to ever happen to them but I realize that's not it's not a possibility so for me I want to make sure they have as many skills as I can give them to be able to deal with the world that they're going into. And that means being able to communicate for themselves, to speak with authenticity about what's important to them, to hold their consent, to know about sexual health. Like we're, we've been reading books and doing all this stuff from a very young age, things that I would have thought, like when I came, my mother handed me the book, uh, you know, there was such shame and guilt and all these awful feelings with it. Whereas I just wanted to be the most natural thing in the world for them to know that there's nothing shameful. This is a body. A body does these things and they're neither good. You know, it's not good or bad. It's not gross. It's just, it just is what it is. Um, so as a parent, I just want to equip them with as many skills as possible so that they can have fun in the world. And like, obviously none of us want the light of our kids to ever get squashed, but how sad it is that for most of the kids whose lights get squashed it does happen at home you know and so I, I do think there's a, a an opportunity for parents to become educated around 
dealing with their own trauma from their childhood and not passing it on. So that intergenerational trauma piece is huge. And it's very hard to see that be passed on in in ignorance, really, when we have so much knowledge. And that that's the tricky bit because we have so much knowledge in the world. But it's the practice of it. It's the integration of that into our lives. That's the difference. We don't need millions and gazillions of books. We need love and attention and focus and one person in the world that is wild about you. That that makes a difference. Just if that makes a difference. And then when you find those other pieces, if as a parent you find that there's rage or anger or or trauma coming up for you to reach out to somebody and to work through that and process it because it is possible and and it's coming up for a reason because your body is telling you something needs to move something needs to move out of it and if you don't know how to move it out yourself you need for the best future for your kids and your family and the planet um to find a way and find the help to get that out so that you don't pass it on because we have a wonderful opportunity with the amount of knowledge that we have and skilled professionals the world over to really make a change we really do and to move to move the needle significantly like we have the knowledge we have today is incredible you know it's incredible and how and uh, I, sorry I was going to no, say no. like how hopeful are you that we are passing that knowledge on and that this is a generation that could break it I mean I'm kind of I guess with similar ages with yeah. um yeah how hopeful are you about the future i am wildly hopeful yay wildly <laughs> hopeful no, 100% i i deal only in hope um yeah i think there is nothing that we cannot do when we put our minds to it i believe in the human spirit it's indelible incredible bright shining ability to solve massive and difficult problems and yeah i've tremendous hope for us as a species and i also think that if we can bring that love and focus into our own hearts and start it there and really like that's where it starts and that that means like, when we do that we come back to that you know i talked about before that child that light that child that's there and like in a lot of ways we're just then peeling off the bullshit that they have believed, the trauma that they've experienced, the cultural conditioning, we're just peeling that away to let the light that's already there out. So for me, it's, yeah, it's hugely possible. Oh, I think that's good. As somebody who left the criminal justice system because of a lack of hope, that makes me feel so much better. And I know I've kept you for quite a while, but I just have one more question, which was about your hobbies, the surfing and the kite surfing and the taekwondo. Like, are they just hobbies or are they something more? Does this fit in with the whole picture as well that you've given us? It it does. So I say the taekwondo I would have started when I was a teenager. um, And that would have been in a stage when I would have really retreated into my my shell after the whole school experience or, or during the school experience. So I started that when I was about 16 and it just gave me such confidence like to be in my body and to hold myself, to be able to lift my head up, which I hadn't been able to do for, for years from the kind of teacher bullying situation. Um, and to be able to hold my head up and just 
to have that strength and knowledge that I'm I'm okay like I can handle myself and to be able to walk down a street with more confidence so one thing I would think for every girl and I definitely when my twins are old enough we'll do martial arts with them because it just gives such confidence and to be able to handle yourself and I have had to use it actually <laughs> so it's, it's a really it's a really good skill to have um and then say the surfing I would have started in my early 20s and it's just getting into the ocean so I do a lot of sea swimming as well but the getting into the ocean and just being part of the ocean and then being able to ride a wave there is nothing quite as exhilarating and humbling because one day you'll be like oh look at me I'm freaking awesome I'm so good at this and then the next day you'll be like oh I just got landed on my ass this is so humiliating (laughs) (laughs) so it really keeps your ego in check like it's it's quite it's quite humbling um but the other bit then would say with the sea swimming or the, you know, getting into the, the water, into the ocean. So when we put our faces in the water, it activates the dive reflex. So for anybody that loves sea swimming or just surfing or like putting your face in the water, putting your whole body in. And I actually do think something biochemical happens when you put your head under because everything changes. How you feel about the world. You could walk into the ocean with a bag of worries on your shoulders. How you feel then when you're in it is exhilarating you, you'd always be questioning yourself when you go you're going in you're like why am I doing this particularly in the middle of the winter in a bikini this just seemed like the maddest thing to be doing and it is a bit mad but you <laughs> when you do it you overcome something you overcome mm. your fear you overcome that your entire body telling you step back and put on the jacket again and we love you warm when you put your head down under something fundamentally changes and part of that is your dive reflex gets activated which essentially slows your heart rate down and activates your polyvagal nerve and basically your parasympathetic system so your parasympathetic system is like just like having a glass of wine slow down your sympathetic system is like having a coffee so your parasympathetic is like have a glass of wine relax it's all okay and you can just you could do that if you were stressed out one day and you didn't have an ocean beside you no uh, which I am to have you can just go and get a nice cold basin of water uh, maybe put some ice in it if you have that but just a cold basin of water and stick your face in it for about 30 seconds obviously don't breathe when you're in there hold your breath like but um and that'll have some of the same effect just putting your face in the water and your head in the water is incredible so mm. there yeah it all links in and then being part of i guess the ocean you just see the well, you see sometimes a lot of the plastic that washes in, but you just see that you're part of something greater, mm. you know, those waves. And, you know, from meditation and yoga, when we talk about um, you're part of the wave. You're a droplet in the wave. You don't have to be the whole wave. Like, don't be so egoic to think that you're the whole wave, you know, and that you want <laughs> to have the wave. But you're a droplet in a very important wave. And just be that droplet. Like, really own being the droplet. Be the best freaking droplet you can be. <laughs> that's what I'm going to be. <laughs> and then I was thinking that we're now like getting all the science about what cold water does to you. And like, come on, guys. <laughs> Even the skeptics can come in now. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Like, and what's remarkable is to see how people have, I don't know about the UK, I'm pretty sure it has to be the same, but it, here in Ireland, how many people have turned to the ocean? Mm. Um, during COVID and lakes and just yeah just any water swimming and just mm. a whole wave of uh, mm. nurturing came from it which is is wonderful to see 
Yes, I'm going to have that hope that you've got. You've inspired me to be a bit more hopeful about the future. I think we have to be hopeful because how we are actually, the energy that we have, whether we feel, if we feel despair and that, you know, anxiety about the climate, well, that sends an energy out into the Mm. world, doesn't it? That sends an energy and it's it's not a really helpful one. Um, And you have a lot of people, you have a lot of young people who feel very anxious about their futures because when they think, God, there's not going to be a planet. So then they're, they're like, what am I doing? Where am I going? What's the point? Apathy. I'm just going to give up in this despair and just depression about the future and then maybe a little lack of sense of purpose. Whereas instead, if we can harness that and actually use our anger and our rage as emotional fuel where we can make meaningful change, I do believe the change is possible. I do believe that we're, we're starting to wake up. And I think it is only with hope that we can change, that we can really change. Because if we if we all get caught in the despair, it's like that little story, you know, the the guy the, the guy and his granddad are walking on the beach and there's a whole bunch of starfish washed up on the beach. And the kid starts throwing the starfish back into the ocean and he goes, there's one. And he throws another one in and another one in. And the granddad goes, but there's hundreds, thousands of starfish on this beach. You can't possibly make a difference. And the little boy goes, well, I did to that one. And that's it. Mm. We don't have to own all the, and I think that's the, the problem. We feel that if we can't fix it all, we shouldn't try. And that's such false thinking because we can fix a tiny bit. And again, we're part, we just have to be the droplet in the wave. We have to own all of the problems. But when we take ownership of our little droplet, we have a ripple effect. And that is powerful. That's mm. immensely powerful. And we can never fully know, nor should we want to know the ripple effect. But just owning our peace is the most important thing. Oh. Owning your peace, Jen, in the whole process too. Still. I know. And I do find that that kind of when you were talking about first working on that kind of love in yourself and how that was important, that kind of that does stop me feeling overwhelmed about <laughs> the whole world because I can I can do that I can work on myself (laughs) so yeah Uh, and I was definitely thinking about the ripple effect like all the programs that you've put put out there like you've helped so many people so thank you so much for that I'm sure you've had such a profound effect on everybody that's come into contact with them Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking all about resilience and I'm sure we covered a lot more but it was fascinating thank you so much Sue Thank you, Jen. It's been really wonderful talking with you. Thank really you. wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Resilience Rising podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do help people find us by hitting subscribe, leaving a review or sharing us with others. Thank you so much and see you next time on the Resilience Rising podcast.